and Margaret is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Uh, it's just a beautiful, chilly morning out there. Going to be a just it looks like an incredible day. Yes, yes. But I got some information and a question. Okay. Yesterday you had somebody call in about a fruit a tree giveaway. Yeah, it's going to be down at the Pearl. Um, yes, yes. I just didn't know if that got put out. It was on the twenty fifth. Right. Pearl. Right, and it's going to be fruit and nut trees is uh, the information that I got. And uh, uh, I think it starts at 8. Is that the uh, – I'm going from memory here. I haven't pulled those notes out. Yeah, but starts, uh, Yeah. starts at 8 o'clock in the Avenue A parking lot. And it's always fun going to the Pearl. And looks like the weather, if you can believe the weatherman, a week out or two weeks out. Um, you know, it, it's going to be a good time to plant, uh, all sorts of fun things. So I appreciate your, your reminding everybody of that. Yeah. Somebody called later in the show yesterday, but you know, there are people, everybody comes and goes. That's the things about radio. I'm the only one that has to sit here and keep going. <laughs> you can tune in and tune out. <laughs> my my, my business partner's uh, husband, who's the biggest tease in the world says, the thing I love most about your show is I can turn you off if I get tired of it. So <laughs> <laughs> but it always it well, we uh, don't turn you we never turn you off in our house you're always well, on when you're on there <laughs> well i like you better than i like him <laughs> i say jokingly he's anyway it's it's a lot of fun and i do i do appreciate you bringing it up because it uh you know i'm sure a lot of people listening this morning that weren't listening yesterday and so uh summarizing 25th of this month saturday morning um, eight o'clock right. down at the Pearl. I don't know what the limitations are going to be. I don't know how many trees are being given away, but it's going to be fruit and nut trees this year. And in the past, they've yeah. always done very good quality trees. And hey, if you can't beat the price, I would uh, uh, encourage everybody to, as, as my friend yesterday said, to get out and take as many of your friends as you can. There you go. But here's my question um, I have a Myers lemon okay. in a large pot. And we're getting lemons, so I don't really want to disturb anything. Uh But my husband now wants to put it in the ground. Okay. Is that a good idea? And if it is, when should we do it? Well, the only reason I would say don't do it right now is because winter's barely started. I mean, usually January is our coldest month, and I've seen some winter some february days that were more winter like than anything we've seen so far and while your myers lemon is uh more cold hardy than other lemons if it's going to get down really 26 or below you're going to need to cover it and protect it so we don't need to launch into that uh little exercise any sooner than we have to so my advice would be wait until we're past the danger of a hard freeze, then plant it. Now, uh, you are not really disturbing the roots. Uh, There's a big difference in transplanting, which means digging it up one place and moving it somewhere else, where you do root damage, where you definitely put the plant in a little bit of shock, as opposed to just Mm -hmm. popping it out of a pot and putting it in the ground, when if you do it carefully... The tree's hardly going to know it's ever been moved, except voila, all of a sudden I've got roots, room to spread out and grow more roots and have a wider area to take up water and everything. So um, mm-hmm. when we talk about transplanting, it's usually moving something from one place to another, uh, taking it out of a pot and putting it into the ground. That can happen 365 days a year with no shock to the plant. But And if this were an oak tree, if this were an elm tree, if this were a pit of sporum, I'd tell you do it this afternoon. 
But my my warning you to hold back a little while on the lemon is just so you don't have to go to any extra efforts. Because once you get it in the ground, you can't very well dig it up and bring it back inside. You can cover it, which you probably will have to do some winters. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, I just don't trust Mother Nature, let alone the weathermen who seem to get it right about one out of a 100 times. And uh, I've seen some extremely cold weather in January and February both. So Anything that's not totally cold-hardy, I'm not sticking it in the ground until we're past the danger of that real hard freeze, which in most cases is going to be early March. Okay. And is there any certain place we should put it, Any like the north side, south side of the house? I would I would always aim for the south side just for, you know, the warmth protection. Uh, it's always warmer on the south side than the north side. But anywhere that it's going to get full sun and has room to grow uh, as I hate to see people plant something so too close to a sidewalk or too close to the house and then worrying about mm-hmm. pruning it, doing all these things to uh, correct a problem that could have prevented if they had looked a little further down the road. So lots of sun, as much protection as possible, and far enough away from the sidewalk and the house, which means five or six feet, uh, that it's not mm-hmm. likely to be an issue. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and you have a good day. Well, you do the same, and thanks again for uh, the reminder on the fruit tree giveaway down there. You have a wonderful day and uh, and a wonderful new decade, Margaret. You too. <laughs> thank Bye-bye. you so much. Bye. All right, uh, Jason's up next. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, woke, up to a little, woke up to a little frost this morning out here in Fayette County. Yeah, I woke up to a little frost up in Bernie this morning, a little frost on the windshield, but... Uh, uh, my freeze miser, that new little device I learned about this past week was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. So I'm, I'm glad it got a little cold cause I, I wanted to see if it would work as advertised and it did. That's a good thing. Well, I'm going to keep you too long. I got two, I got a little bit of information I wanted to, to show upon you cause I ran across some leaf cutter ants on my property. Okay. Um, and I have read so much stuff on what you could and can't do, and I know they don't eat bait like typical ants. So right. I thought, you know, I'm going to try to disturb their little party down there by using some delimonade and water. Uh huh. And I mixed a heavy mat- batch, about six to eight uh, tablespoons or six to eight ounces per gal- for a gallon of water. Yes, sir. Walked down to the main hole they were going in, shoved my wand in there, and actually locked it and put about three-quarters of a gallon of that water down the hole uh-huh. and then sprayed the rest of it around the entry hole. When I went back a day later, there was a bunch of dead leaf cutters at the entry mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of leaf cutters walking around with nothing in their hands in circles around the hole. Very good. Very good. So... Um, I'm, I, they actually moved to a different hole, and I'm like, I'm just going to keep doing this until I get to the find all the holes, and maybe I can run them off. Right. But well, you're and you're certainly uh, the the proof will be in the long term. Um, uh, you know, because the the leaf cutter ant, and don't confuse the leaf cutters with the red harvester ants. The leaf cutters are those black ants that are actually carry pieces of leaves instead of pieces of grain. But uh, they've got a big underground chamber, and uh, I've had a lot of people tell me that flooding that chamber has been most effective for them, and flooding with something that's got the delimining in it is going to be the best of all worlds if you're willing to do that. But most leafcutter mounds are going to have from three to six entrances, so um, I think you've still got some work ahead of you. But, yeah, sure. uh, water and orange oil is going to be 
pretty toxic to uh and, and i should mention how it's toxic it's not it's not a poison that's consumed by the ants the way uh orange oil works is that it is a strong solvent and it kind of softens the exoskeleton ants like most insects and things have a hard exoskeleton and that delimonene works to soften that up and then our naturally occurring bacteria and fungi move in and kill the ant so it's not something that's you know you're not contaminating the ground you're not poisoning anything so it's one of the safest ways of controlling all kinds of problems now I would be very careful using it in anything growing in a pot because it will burn roots, sure. and earthworms certainly don't sure. like it. But uh, as an ant controller, I think it's great for fire ants. I think it's great for uh, any of the troublesome ants that are out there. And uh, I sure look forward to hearing how it works long-term as far as really eliminating that leafcutter mound because, you know, I mean, the, it's it's an issue for you and me but the paper industry over in East Texas and other areas, you know, it's a multi-million dollar problem for them. And uh, if there yeah. were any easy solutions, they would have found them a long time ago. But, of course, they're looking at yeah. things that are actually poisonous, where smart people like Jason are looking at things that work without being highly toxic. So I think you're very definitely on to something. And uh, I'll look forward to hearing from you in a month or so as to uh, how many times you've had to retreat, how successful you've been in actually sure. totally wiping out the and colony. These may, these, these, these may actually be the harvester ants you were talking about, because these are red ants. They're not black. Okay, well, those are not leaf cutters. Those are not nearly okay. the problem that true leaf cutters are. And they are actually the harvester ants. Now, you can use a bait. You can use the same come and get it bait uh, that we use for fire okay. ants. So, um, okay. yeah, you will, you will certainly kill them. But you're in the case of harvester ants, two things. You're working a whole lot harder than you need to eliminate that mound. And, uh, those guys, I leave them alone if they're outside my garden, if they're outside my yard, because they don't really damage plants. They're mainly gathering grains and things like that. And, uh, they are an important food source for, you know, lizards and birds and other things. So, uh, don't go too overboard on trying to, uh, okay. eliminate them, but, uh, uh, <laughs> I'll do some more research on it and yeah. see what I can come up with. You said red versus black, and these are clearly red ants. They look like bull ants to me, and um, that's that's probably what they are then. But um, I have one more question for Certainly. you real quick. And what I've got out here is sandy topsoil, sandy soil mixed with black topsoil. Right. And um, my biggest three problems out here are going to be briar growing up, on every tree that comes out of the ground. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, dewberry, you can see from Google Earth. All right. And, <laughs> and I've got these weeds that look like wacky tobacco plants that grow about six to seven feet tall. Mm -hmm. They laugh at a commercial weed eater. Right. And you cannot pull them out of the ground with two hands. Right. Um, they dry out during the wintertime, and you can walk up to them with one hand and pull them straight out of the ground. Yeah. Have you, have you gone out on a really cold morning early in the winter? And looked at them. I have not, because right now they're dead. They yeah. they all die back. Well, so, um, you you will not eliminate them in a single season. But uh, let me tell you, they are one of nature's little interesting things. Because if you will go out the night of the first hard freeze we have, it is an mm -hmm. absolutely incredible spectacle. The lower part of the stem freezes and explodes. 
and you will see, in fact, you may even want to Google this and look at it. Uh, Google uh, iceweed or freezeweed. Its botanical name is Ver- Verbesnia virginiana. Why that sticks in my mind, I don't know. But it's like little wafer-thin thousands of little, well, or hundreds or dozens at least, of little layers of ice come out of the sides of the stem. And uh, it's, if you're a photographer at all, you'll go wild out there. You'll be down on your hands and knees, you know, burning through a... But anyway, they're interesting things. Uh, the, you know, the thing about all of those issues... Uh, there's not really any safe herbicide you can use because uh, anything that kills all of those things uh, is going to be very toxic to your trees as well. Now, sure. as far as the dewberries, as far as the iceweed, um, and and are we talking acres? Are we talking uh, a thousand square feet? Two and a half is what, I've got two and a half acres up here, okay. and I'm just now getting all the hackberries knocked down to where yeah. I can actually get out there and start shredding the field completely. Well, if you the um, if you want to go after the ice weed, a grubbing hoe is by far the best way to do it. As far as the dewberries, the thing that you know the situation is exactly the same. You may have a you know a dewberry plant that's five by five, but it has one spot that is coming out of the ground and one little sweep right. of a grubbing hoe. You're going to cut it off. You're going to drag it off, and when it resprouts, you're going to have a much better picture of where that plant is and. Uh, and it's the the verbesnia. The verbesnia has it's kind of a dense, you know, woody kind of a rhizome mat right underneath the surface of the soil. And while you can't pull it out with your hands, I mean, one or two swipes with a grub and hoe, you can pull out the entire root system and be rid of it. It's not a big deal. Um, they do make a lot of seed in the fall. They're probably going to sprout up in shady areas here and there. But your dewberry and uh, your iceweed are it's just going to take a little physical effort, and they're not going to be too hard to get rid of. The greenbrier, uh, again, if you want to look it up, Spilax bonanax is its botanical name. It has the gnarliest, weirdest-looking underground structure you've ever seen, and you can cut it back a 100 times, and it sprouts out again. Well, maybe not a hundred times, but the really the only way that I have ever found to eliminate it is either get some goats or just simply get in there and cut it back, cut it back every time it sprouts up, cut it back down, and it will eventually die out. But um, it's almost impossible to dig out of the ground, and where it's close to trees, you simply can't get it out without um, you know without doing right. severe damage to the tree roots. So, and if, that's where it is out here. It's completely in the. It grows up near every hackberry tree oh, yeah. that comes up, and it crawls up the hackberry tree, and it's actually encroaching on a century-old oak tree on my live oh, oak yeah. tree on my property. Yeah, it doesn't it's ever get. get yeah, it doesn't ever get thick enough to really be a problem. Um, but it, yeah, there are places where you know the old the proverbial briar thicket for brer rabbit was probably smilax because you know nothing's going to go through that to get after anything so us little creatures think it's fun to live in there if you are you know if you go through if you cut it down to ground level i cut it at ground level and then i cut it about six feet up so i'm not you know scraping my face on it uh because it'll hang there for two years after you've cut it and killed it but if if it's sharp yeah, you once you've cut it once, when the new growth comes out, it's really tender, 
and your line trimmer will take it down, you know, very quickly, just as long as you don't let it get too far up and get too woody. But that's one of those things. I look at it as exercise, kind of like cutting little cedars. Uh, I take my walk with my pruning shears uh, a lot of mornings on my days off, and just, you know, I've got different paths that I walk around my ranch, and I have a, have a lot more problematic things than you do because i'm blessed to live on uh, a big piece of land that the family bought in the late 1800s but uh um, the uh, uh you know just grubbing hose all you're going to need on the dewberries and on the uh, ice weed but and just get started cutting it down and remember it's really tender when it comes out uh and it's once you make that first initial deal and don't try to do it all in one afternoon just uh look at it as your exercise program cancel your gym membership and spend 30 minutes a day out there with your pruning shears and uh you'll save some money and get all the especially upper body exercise working those shears yeah, back exactly. and forth but uh yeah, yeah. it's kind of welcome okay. to the hill country but uh uh, I don't eliminate all that ice weed or be sure you've got some on a neighbor's property. Cause if you'll make it out the first day that it gets down into the middle twenties, it is just a, a winter wonderland. What that stuff does when it, it freezes and explodes. I'll have, to, I'll have to take a look at that. I never paid attention to it. I just noticed it's always real green, prolific, and it grows in the ditches and everything else around here. And then more and, in the shade than in the sun, but, uh, it, it's, yeah. it's a winter wonderland when it does freeze. Fantastic. I'll look, I'll look out for that. But thanks so much, Bob. I appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jason. Good to talk to you. All right. Back to the phone lines. Anna, Francelina, Dave, and Glenn in that order. Anna's first. Good morning, Anna. Uh, good morning. Good <laughs> morning. Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah, Happy New Year. And I hope everything, all the roses come out beautiful. I bet they will. Okay. I have several questions. I haven't talked to you in some time, but now I've loaded them all up. <laughs> okay, let's get started. Okay, I just want a verification on Saturday, January 25th at the Pearl for the Fruit and Nut Distribution. At 8 o'clock in the morning. 8 a.m. 8 yes. Okay, now do I have to have any uh, paperwork uh, other than my name and address? I don't know that you have to have anything other than a desire to grow the trees. I... Uh, um, I've not been made aware. I, you know, I'd, I'd probably have something that has your address just to show that you are a resident of San Antonio, but I, I have not seen anything that says you have to bring anything. Okay. Because I'd hate to get out there in the cold winter and then say, well, I'm sorry, but I cannot accept you. You don't have the proper paperwork. Well, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll see if I, in fact, I'll, I'll try to that morning I'll be on the air and I'll try to. Maybe we can get somebody on the air that uh, has something to do with that and get you a little bit more total information on it. But the best of my knowledge, there it's not like, you know... Uh, who is it put out? By CPS? You know, I think it's Pi Parks and Recreation, but I'm not sure. Uh-huh. Okay, now, and that's settled. Uh, let me say, I have some shallots, some blue bonnet seeds, some uh, poppy, red poppy seeds, and some grass seeds. When can I plant all of those? Uh, what kind of grass seed do you have? Oh, just common grass. I forget. Just I found it in the class. In, in the <laughs> <laughs> well, everything except the grass plant today. Um, uh-huh. uh, the sooner the better. Uh, my red poppies are already six inches tall, and I haven't seen any oh. buds yet. But they're they come out very early. Uh, the grass seed, if it is a winter grass, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can certainly put it out right now, winter rye of any sort, annual or perennial, that can be planted right now. I if, think it's Bermuda. Uh, in that case, uh, put it away till Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Yeah. Uh, okay. Then the blue bonnet, you know that now. Yeah, immediately. Okay. Immediately. Okay. I, I wish you'd done the blue bonnets and the uh, poppies uh, a month or two ago, but, you know, the next best time is today. Yeah, but they still, we haven't had any rain, so really, there's, I, I was thinking, uh, uh, if I had put them together, they would have been sitting there, we haven't had any rain. You're I exactly had, right. Yeah, they uh, probably wouldn't have sprouted if you're relying on rainfall to get them going, but, uh, yeah, but I, I'd sure get them out as soon as you can. Okay, the next question is, I, I need some real fast, uh, climbing vines for, um, for my fence. Do they need? I, I do was they... looking at the vine. It looks like a little orange trumpet. Uh huh. And it's beautiful. And and is that does that grow pretty fast? Fairly quickly. Is this a sunny area? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. That is called that's called tangerine beauty cross vine. Now, do not buy trumpet vine. That stuff can be a weed, and it's going to drop all its leaves in the winter. But Tangerine Beauty Cross Vine is evergreen. It's relatively fast-growing. It puts on a very large show of flowers in the spring, and then it scatters a few flowers through the summer months as well. So Tangerine Beauty Cross Vine, uh, Bignonia, if you're looking for a botanical name. But it's a great plant, and now's a great time to plant it. Um, do they come in little, uh, little, um, uh, little cups, like about a, a package of six little, uh, no. starters? No. no, you'd be amazed. I'd be amazed if you find them in anything smaller than a one gallon container, uh-huh. but they get pretty big. I mean, if you're trying to cover your fence, you can put them probably four feet apart and they'll still grow solid. So it's not going to take a huge number of plants and nobody said you have to plant them all at the same time. You can do 20 feet of your fence now, 20 feet of your fence next month, and pretty soon it's all done. Oh, okay. Uh, now, I uh, what can I use to kill the, the fence trees? Hmm. Uh, next question. <laughs> no, the trees that come up along the fence are darn hard to get rid of. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. I, I keep cutting them, cutting them, and, and, and i pulling them and so forth because I don't... They yep. said put uh, diesel oil in there, but I'm afraid that since no. I have a privacy fence, somebody will throw a cigarette or something there. And well, that's that's not going to happen, but it's going to keep your uh, it's going to keep your other vine from growing and doing well. So, I you know, unless you can find a way to cut them off several inches below the ground, eventually they will give up. The little ones, I pick a rainy day and, and pull them out of the ground, but those bigger ones, I fight them just like everybody else does, and there is nothing safe that you can put on there that won't be damaging to other roots and other things. So, you know, if this were out on a ranch somewhere, yeah, I'd put diesel on the stump, and then I'd follow it up a little bit of molasses. Have you tried to pull those things out? The roots go, like, forever. They go from here to China. I've got as many of them as you do, and probably a whole lot more. The secret is pick a rainy day or after we've had some good rain, which hasn't been lately, uh, except we did get some rain this week, but I'm talking something really soaked the ground up to the size of, um, you know, a pencil or a little smaller uh, if they haven't been cut off before, I can usually pull them out of the ground. It's not easily, but the bigger ones, no. I try to cut them off below ground level. One thing that uh, some people have told me is, you know, cut them off as close as you can to the ground and then put a soup can or something like that, dig up and put that down over the top of it and bury it. 
and supposedly it tries and tries and tries to get through that metal and eventually gives up and dies. But uh, haven't tried that. You can try that and see how it works for you. Okay. Next question. I have a I have a Oriental persimmon, a Myers lemon, a fig tree, uh, and what kind of fertilizer would you recommend that I use? I'd use exactly the same thing you use on your grass. Just a good organic fertilizer. Medina Grow and Green, Maestro Texas Tea, Nature's Creations Premium Lawn Food. Um, any of those, uh, any of those would be excellent for your trees. They don't require a special diet. You know, last year, uh, I normally get about three bushels out of my oriental persimmon or mm-hmm. more. Yeah. I mean, my persimmon tree is about 30 feet high. Yeah. Beautiful. But last year, I think I had about 12 persimmons. Yeah, we had a late freeze, and it did uh, destroy a lot of the little fruits before they could really start growing. Um, hopefully, this will be a better year. The good news is that... When a, well, when any fruit tree, but persimmons are certainly in that group, if they take a year off from production due to weather the following year, assuming that the weather doesn't, you know, throw a real curve to us, they usually produce more than ever. So you better be ready to uh, line up all your friends that love persimmons because uh, hopefully this I, I, will be a good year. I all the family with them, and they all come with a bushel basket. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you, this tree produces. Yeah, they are a wonderful tree. They're slow to get started, slow growing, but mm-hmm. once they're up and growing, they are a, a very successful fruit tree in this area. Very well. Thank you so much for your time and your Oops, uh, you're welcome, Anna, and don't wait so long to call again. All right, let's get back to the phone lines. Francelina, Dave, Glenn, and Charles. Good morning, Francelina. Good morning. Happy New Year. And to you as well. Happy New Decade. <laughs> I know. So I just have two quick uh, questions. Um we had that little freeze, which I wasn't counting on, mm-hmm. and a few of my plants, they lost leaves around them, and the, the middle looks looks okay. Should I just cut the dead or just cut them all down? Give me a quick run-through on what kind of plants we're talking about. We're talking about the mother-in-law's tongue, that big, long, green one, Yee. and we're talking about, uh, I know, and then a, a rose bush. Uh. Okay. Well, the rose and, uh, is not hurt at all. Uh, I would not prune your good. rose at this point. Uh, put on your okay. calendar to prune your rose around Valentine's Day. If it's a bush rose, now climbing roses, we don't prune them until after they bloom. But bush roses, you know, every every person out there likes to receive roses on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all you okay. ladies love roses, yeah, so yeah. it's really easy to remember that that's the time to prune them. And um, okay. Uh, as far as the Sansevieria, the mother-in-law's tongue, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I would, I would for now, I would leave it alone. I would bring it inside. I would keep okay. it inside because you can't really tell how much was frozen, how much uh, you're going to lose. Give it a week or so to start shriveling and dry up and then cut uh-huh. off anything that appears to be damaged. I mean, Sansevieria will turn to mush. Uh, had it been a hard freeze, you'd be looking at just a slimy mess. It's not going to come back. Hopefully, it just got some damage, but it's going to take a week or two or three before you can really tell what's damaged and what isn't, oh. and then it's just sort of a cosmetic little tidy-up kind of thing. Gotcha. Okay, I can do that. And... um the, I have a spider plants that I'm bringing in and out, in and out, in okay. and out. 
and the little ba- the little babies, uh-huh. they, I accidentally, they fall out. They have like a little bit of root. I can go ahead and put them in dirt right now. It wouldn't hurt them. No, you but, certainly can. And believe it or not, you know, there's several different forms of the spider plant or airplane plant or chlorophyll, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call them. Um, mm-hmm. They are actually, you know, more cold-hardy, certainly more cold-hardy than your oh. uh, sense of area. And while, you know, if they're raised up in a hanging basket, of course, you have to be careful that it doesn't freeze solid. But I've had airplane plants out down in the middle 20s without any damage whatsoever. So if you're going to forget a plant next time, (laughs) that's a good one to forget. Um, You know, you can you can take those little plantlets off and plant them Mm -hmm. up if you like the other Mm -hmm. thing if you have room to do it if you want the fastest results and you have room to do it you know is a plant in a hanging basket or in a pot yes sir Okay, set it down on a table or something like that, and just uh, take a bunch of little four-inch pots. Any good nursery will give you their leftover four-inch plastic pots. Just fill them with soil, and just take like a, you know, spread open a, a... bobby pin or make a little you know staple or something like that or paper clip rather mm-hmm. just bend a bunch of little U's and kind of pin those things down to your little pots and after a relatively short period of time they will have taken yeah. root big time and then you're going to snip them off and you've already got a well-established little plant to I give to your friends for valentine's day Awesome. Good to know. In in a in a commercial nursery, you know, or in a in a growing situation, what they would do is take a bench that is basically filled with soil. Same thing they do with Boston mm-hmm. ferns and things. You just set this basket down on top of them, let those little plantlets mm-hmm. flop down on the ground and take root, and then uh-huh. you know let them get roots that are good sized and already used to the soil, and then just basically mm-hmm. pot them up and they're ready to go. But uh, you can do it the other way. You can take them, but if they don't have a fair little root system started, it's going to be hard mm-hmm. to keep them from just wobbling around and being too loose in the pot. So if there's a way that you can do that, you can actually sort of pin them down to the pot and let them get started before you cut them free from yeah. the mother plant. Yeah. Uh, it's You'd be 110% successful. Good to know. I'm so happy that you gave me that information because I have a bunch of them. I have a bunch of them. <laughs> and and there are actually three different forms of that plant, um, three different common ones, or maybe more than that. But some of them, the, the green is on the outside of the leaf. Some of them, the white's on the outside of the leaf. And then there is a solid green form of that plant as well. Yes. So uh, they're a yes. great plant if you have any friends, kids, grandkids, anybody that are just getting into plants. That's one of those plants you just can't go wrong with so it's always a great first plant for anybody that's just getting started with their plants awesome glad to know glad, glad for that information i'm going to do that today as a matter of fact go outside and work on that and it's not going to freeze anymore is it <laughs> <laughs> you know i worked with a wonderful gentleman up in the hill country and uh people would come in and say alton when is it going to freeze and he'd say when it gets to 32 so it's not going to freeze again unless it gets to 32 Gotcha. gotcha. Okay. All right. I appreciate all your information. Thank you so much. Have a good Sunday. You do Thank the you. same. Thank you. All right. Top of the board is Dave. Good morning, Dave. Hi, Bob. Good morning. Uh, it will be a, a year in March that I planted uh, several pallets of, of uh, Raleigh uh, Augustine. Okay. And probably, I'm thinking mid-late September, I saw a spot that about the size of a gallon. It was all brown and like, you know, like a 
spilled some gas or some dog stopped or something, and then yeah. I didn't pay any attention to it. And uh, a couple, of, maybe a month ago, I noticed it was about the size of a five-gallon bucket, and I put some stakes in the ground, and it's grown a little bit. And then last week, I discovered two more places in the yard mm-hmm. uh, that are doing it. Do you have any idea? What would you guess is going on? Well, if you'd asked me, I would have told you not to plant Raleigh St. Augustine because that is probably the most brown patch susceptible variety of St. Augustine out there. The fact that they are getting larger tells me that it's probably not grubworm damage, so it probably is brown patch fungus. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is that it's very easily controlled with whole ground cornmeal. Just get out there, and everywhere you see that brown patch, it has spread six inches further into the surrounding grass. So uh, just get out there with your bucket, your cheap cornmeal, and just give a good sprinkling over each brown spot and about six inches out. It will look a little worse before it gets better. Uh, If you've got, you know, a big area to do... um, Go to a feed store, go to a good nursery, go somewhere that you can get some big bags of it and put your cornmeal out at about the same rate you would put out your fertilizers. Put it in a fertilizer spreader and put out. The cornmeal, of course, isn't the magic. It's the trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal, which kills brown patch. In fact, all the different Rhizoctonia fungi. But um, what you're looking at is brown patch, very common in Raleigh. It's going to always be a problem. It's always going to show up and spread during the period when the days are warm and the nights are cool. And that certainly describes what most of this fall has been so far. So uh, I very definitely would get it taken care of, or it will continue to increase and be in, you know, a worse problem. Um, what would you say? How long is uh, cornmeal uh, uh, effective? Mm, several months. Okay. Several months. Again, it is not the cornmeal. It is the rhizoctonia, a very beneficial fungus, uh, the same fungus that will control oak wilt, that will take care of toenail fungus and athlete's foot and ringworm and virtually every fungal problem out there, the rhizoctonia are, that grows on the cornmeal will control. So uh, your other option, I don't think it's quite as effective uh, on the grass as it is, it is on some other things, but your other option would be to... Uh, uh, take five-gallon bucket, put a couple of cups of cornmeal in there, soak it overnight, and then just spray that water on. If you've got big, big areas to do, you can do it as a liquid spray rather than putting out dry cornmeal. It'll, of course, make your cornmeal go further. And what I would do is put your cornmeal, get your lady there, uh, wife, girlfriend, whomever, um, you know, put the cornmeal down in the toe of an old pair of pantyhose or socks or something like that. Soak it that way, and that way you don't have to strain the water. After, uh, you know, 24 hours, you can simply pull it out, throw it away, and now we've got this wonderful natural fungicide that will very definitely control uh, brown patch. Well, we've used the cornmeal several times, actually, even in that area. Uh, yeah. We, it's, it's, there's an oak tree there, and we used it uh just kind of as a preventive measure out there. So we, do you have the large bags? We do. We keep it in 30-pound bags, and uh, um, it's by nature's creation, and it's real good stuff. You know, if you told me you needed 400 pounds, I'd be honest and tell you to go to a feed store, and you'll probably find it cheaper than we have it. But we carry 
of the packaged cornmeal, we carry the Nature's Creation product, which is actually a combination of garlic, which is good natural fungicide, and the good cornmeal. So, yeah, we very definitely keep it in stock all the time. All right, good. Yeah, I had that big, uh, a, a sad day. I had that large post oak taken out uh, yeah. this week. Uh, kind of like a drone strike. I, I, I left the house, and it was there, and I came home, and it was gone. So... Well, it's, uh, you know, that's the post oaks are beautiful trees, but man, they're just the wimps of the tree world. They die if it's too dry. They die if it's too wet. They're just, uh, many years ago, I had the pleasure of going to Scotland and visiting with a fellow with sheep there. He said a, a sheep is born, but with one ambition, and that is to die. And that's kind of the way I feel about post oaks. They, they look for any excuse to expire on us. And, uh, unfortunately the, extremes of weather that we have had going from extremely wet to extremely dry have been much harder on them than they have been on live oaks and uh you know lacy's oaks and burr oaks and monterey oaks and lots of the others but uh um look at it as an opportunity to plant some things that are more sun loving and um hopefully you get a good pile of firewood out of the deal i've already purchased three other trees so i'm <laughs> good I'm- for you dave I'm ready. All right. Thanks, sir. You're sure welcome. Appreciate the call. All right. Back to gardening. It's going to be Glenn and Charles and James and Ron. And Glenn is up first. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh, two two questions for you. Uh, two ends of the spectrum. One, I had a 10 by 10 asparagus patch that has pretty much died out after eight, nine years. I've only got one little asparagus plant uh, still going. Uh, should I go ahead and till all that up and put new asparagus in? Um, if you're sure it's dead, you might as well. Whether you till it or not doesn't really matter, but this is certainly the time of the year to plant asparagus. Now, asparagus ought to live for 50 years. I mean, if it, uh, a lot of folks, including me, have not watered their asparagus often enough in the past two very dry periods and uh it's not coming back as strong as i would like but just make a resolution or maybe incorporate some drip irrigation or something in there that will help you maintain good moisture because uh um you really shouldn't have to replace your asparagus well if i plant some new asparagus i i won't get anything this year correct well Yes and no. You shouldn't get anything this year because the first year we always want to leave it alone to let it grow and get really well established. It's going to sprout up. It's going to put on, you know, a few little spears. And if you want to just snap one or two off and eat them, you're not going to, it's not going to be the end of the world for the plants. But I would not plan on a heavy harvest the first year. Okay. Uh, Second question Uh, Information 101 on planting grass. I originally at this house uh, had planted Bermuda everywhere, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, boss said uh, too much water, so we quit watering. And now I've got basically weeds, natural grass, and a little bit of spotty St. Augustine. Okay. Uh, well, what what do I do? Do I uh, checkerboard it? Do I uh, do I have to weed eat what grass is there down? To well, dirt? what what you need to do first of all is think about installing a rainwater catchment system so you don't get fussed at about watering, because Bermuda is probably our lowest water using grass of anything that makes a real 
nice yard. It takes about the same amount of water to keep St. Augustine, Bermuda, Zoysia, uh, any of those grasses looking good. Uh, the difference is St. Augustine, you stop watering, it dies. Bermuda, normally when it rains, it comes right back out. So uh, I would I would mow it down. I would wait until it's it's not really the best time to be planting new grass. I would mow it down. I mow it regularly to take care of any weeds that are coming up. Everything's browned out, so you can go out there with your vinegar and orange oil right now and kill all the weeds that are out there. But I think with water, with fertilizer, you may be amazed how much Bermuda is still alive. Uh, Glenn, it's it's a bit of an issue because um, Bermuda is probably the best grass you could have um, where you're concerned about water usage because, like I say, normally... Uh, when it gets droughty, when we, for one reason or another, have to stop watering, if our Bermuda is healthy, it just turns brown, and then it greens up with the first rain or whenever you're able to go back to watering. Now, there are many different kinds of Bermuda. If you want the low-growing, really dense one that they use on golf courses, that's called TIFF, T-I-F-F, and you can plant that from pieces of sod, and you can checkerboard it, as you mentioned. You can cut it up in little pieces. You can lay it in solid, you know, whatever you like to do, but you are going to have to water it. Uh, Common Bermuda can be planted from seed, but not this time of year. That's the easiest and cheapest thing to plant, but we have to wait until we're into not just warm, but really hot weather. So, um the the other option is to say, okay, I'm going to have just a small part of a yard that I'm going to really maintain as a, you know, lush lawn for me, for kids, for grandkids, for pets, for whatever. And I'm going to plant the rest of the yard with more native grasses, which might be buffalo, which might be habiturf, uh, which can be a number of different things. But these grasses are not things that... You know, you really mow and manicure to make it look like a yard. It looks more like a pretty native area. And most of those grasses you're also going to plant from seed um, after the weather warms up. So right now, the things that I would recommend doing, I would put out some fertilizer sometime soon to benefit what Bermuda have left. I would mix up some orange oil and vinegar, uh, two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of strong vinegar, and just go spray everything that's green. Your Bermuda is totally browned out, and it's not going to be hurt by this natural weed killer. Uh, but your vinegar and orange oil spray is going to kill the dandelions, going to kill the clover, going to kill the winter grass, kill anything weedy that's green that's coming up. And when it warms up, um, you know, let's see how much grass you you know, of Bermuda grass you actually have. And unless it's been neglected for years, I truly think that uh, you're going to find a little water, a little fertilizer. Uh, your, your Bermuda will come back and will take over and you will have a green lawn. But you guys are going to have to work out the issue of whether you're going to spend the money on watering or not because uh, Bermuda is probably the most drought-tolerant grass we have, but it does have to be watered to keep it green and nice. Well, we, several years after we planted this, we went ahead and put in over 2,000 gallons worth of rainwater catchment system uh-huh. in. Yeah. And uh, uh, she does water her plants and flowers and things of that nature with it. But um, we'll go ahead and try what you're talking about and see what happens here during the summer. Well, it'll be good. And I applaud you for, 
you know, for doing that. But 2,000 gallons, unfortunately, in a landscape doesn't go very far. It's, uh, you know, 20,000 gallons would be real nice. That's not always practical, but um, uh, unfortunately, you know, un- unless you want to go with just much more of a native look. Now, the other option, um, if you choose to do so, you could go in, you could do, you know, a lot more planting and plant ground covers, perhaps plant some native shrubs and trees and reduce the amount of grassy area you have. Uh, I think most of us have way too much grass in our landscapes, which would be much better as perennial beds, as ground covers, things like that. But uh, uh, above all, I hope we're going to get away from, you know, having six months with no rain, which is what we've just gone through, because that's that's hard on everything. But uh, I guess I'm optimistic because we did get that good rain Friday night, and let's hope we move back into a little bit more moist period, and everything's going to be a whole lot better. I appreciate your time, sir. You have a safe and blessed New Year. You do the same, sir. Thank you. All right. Charles is up next. Good morning, Charles. Yes, Bob. Uh, thank you for receiving my call. Thank you for calling. Uh, I've got a, a couple of questions, Bob. Last week, I have a grapefruit tree that's only about three years old, and last uh-huh. week, all the all the leaves started falling off and curling up. Okay. Did they and, turn yellow? Uh, and, and well, they turned dry. Okay. And, and a couple and a couple of them have got little holes on them about the size of a BB or something like that. Okay. But uh, what what do, what do I got or what can I do about it? Well, if the tree if the leaves have turned brown but still stay attached to the tree, it probably got some freeze damage. Um, no, some no, grapefruit not... varieties are hardier, some varieties less hardy. Uh, if they turn yellow to brown and fall off, it probably got too dry. Wow. Uh, is it in a pot or is it in the ground? In the ground. And how often are you watering? Oh, just about every other day. Okay. Um, and how long has it been planted? Three years. Okay. You know, strangely enough, uh, Bob, it might be for your, for your information, uh, for your answer. It seems that only the top part where the tender new uh, leaves came out yeah. are, are being taken. Okay. The other ones are... Yeah, that that's a little cold damage. You know, we had that early, early freeze back in, I think it was late October, before plants had really gotten hardened off and ready for winter. And if it's just okay. top, just the exposed portion like that, that's just a, that's just a little bit of uh, too much frost, too much cold weather. And um, I would, anytime we're forecast to get mid-20s or below, cover it with a little row cover. It's obviously not real big, but... Uh, uh, there, I mean, I had boxwood that suffered some freeze damage at that point. There are lots of shrubs that are normally cold hardy that they simply got, as we say, caught with their plants down. They uh, they just weren't ready for the cold, and the new growth froze while the old growth is fine. I think that's all on earth you're looking at that uh, a grapefruit tree. I don't think it's a disease or an insect or anything else. I think you may be watering a little bit more than you need to if you're watering thoroughly you probably get by watering every five to seven days but what you're describing is just a little bit of freeze damage from that early early freeze okay. we had okay next question i had me i'd like to see what i'm trying to buy a tangerine tree and uh-huh. a grapevine and a, a few i think it was last year you mentioned the name of a grapevine but i lost my notes <laughs> well in my opinion the best and most successful grapevine in this area is called champanel c-h-a-m-p-a-n-e-l 
Um, it's a vigorous grower, produces lots of very tasty grapes. Uh, they will have uh, a seed in them, but they're good for table grapes, they're good for wine grapes, they're good for grape juice, and they are not nearly as susceptible as some of the other grapes are to some of the root problems that kill out so many. We have a disease called Pierce's disease in this area, which is the reason we don't see more big vineyards and things. But Champanel will be a very, very good grape for you. As far as the uh, as the tangerines, some of the newer Satsumas uh, have fewer seeds. The old original tangerine that Malcolm Beck started per, you know promoting years ago was called Changsha, and it's a good tangerine, but it's got 15, 20 seeds in every fruit. The newer varieties, you'll find one called Miho, M-I-H-O, another one called Seto, S-E-T-O, another one called Kimbro. Those are all excellent tangerines uh, for this area. They have many fewer seeds. They're cold-hardy down into the teens, and once they're established, they are heavy producers. Would you be kind enough to spell those last two, the Ebro and the... Yeah, the, uh, the okay, Miho, M-I-H-O, Seto is S-E-T-O, and Kimbro is K-I-M-B-R-O-U-G-H. G-H, very good. Um, my last question is, uh, you a little while ago you talked to another uh, customer of yours that about when to prune the rose, right. and rose vines. Right. I, I didn't catch your answer. Would you okay. kind of update? All right, certainly. Um, bush roses are uh, roses that bloom on new growth in the spring. So regular bush roses, we're going to prune them right around Valentine's Day. We don't prune them earlier because if we do, they try to sprout too soon and then they freeze back. But pruning right around Valentine's Day, if they need to be pruned, that's when we prune our bush roses. Now, climbing roses, the blooms that you get in the spring come on the wood that grew last fall. So climbing roses, we let them bloom in the spring and then we prune them after their first heavy bloom period. But bush roses, we bloom before because all their new all their buds are going to come out on the new growth. So bush roses prune around Valentine's Day. Typically on climbing roses, it's somewhere around Easter to Mother's Day after they've had that first heavy bloom flush. Wow. And, and climbing climbing roses generally don't require much pruning. Uh, only time I really would ever prune climbing roses is just to take any dead wood out. And if they simply get out of hand, they're growing where you don't want them. Bush roses, uh, especially grafted ones, I think you improve the vigor and you very definitely improve the shape by pruning bush roses. But climbers, yeah, they're not going to need much help from you except maybe just take out a dead limb here or there. Or, you know, if you've got a limb encroaching on somewhere that you get snagged on it, then it needs to go. But uh, after after their first bloom period, it's a time to prune them. Very good. Listen, Bob, thank you very much for taking the time to answer my call. That's what Have I'm here day, for, sir. Charles. I appreciate it, and thank you, sir. All right, uh, next up is James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Well, sir? I'm doing well, sir. Good to hear your voice as always. Well, it's good to be uh, heard, I tell you what. <laughs> as, as a friend of mine says, it's better to be seen than to be viewed. That's a fact, sir. Um, a friend of mine up in Utopia has got cut, cut ants that are eating up uh, his broccoli, and then they moved over to the cauliflower. Oh, man, yeah. And I told him if it's kind of like getting married. If if you got cut ants, it's, you got them. <laughs> 
Okay. I'm not going down that road. Uh, that that's going to get into us into nothing but trouble, James. So uh, you can use that analogy if you like, but uh, we we don't want to go any further with that one because uh, I still think the what, what people telling me drowning your problems is is the best way to get rid of those cut ants. Oh man, uh, just soak them with water, huh? You know, I again, it's um, again they are a problem in our gardens and things. Uh, out on my acreage, I don't bug them because they eat that briar that we were talking about getting rid of earlier. But uh, different people have told me different things. Um, you know, as as you well know. Uh, those cut ants are not eating the leaves. They're eating the fungus that grows on the leaves. And treating with wettable sulfur kills that fungus and gradually wipes out the colony. I've had people tell me that they put diatomaceous earth around each opening into the mound. And if it's good and dry, some people have said they got rid of it that way. I've had people that flooded the mound with orange oil and water that say that they totally eliminated a mound. But the single thing that people, I think, have been most consistent with is if they're in an area where they can, they simply flood that mound, uh, you know, and do it two or three times, and they tell me that kills them out and they don't come back. So I've not had to fight them in recent years because all of mine are way out away from the house. I guess they got the word that they're not welcome. But uh, I, I truly i have heard of bad poisons. I've heard of lots of different things, but the single most consistent thing seems to be flooding them to get rid of them. Okay, well, the diatomaceous earth uh, temporarily keep them at bay while the the flood starts if you can get it if you can get it out there where they walk through it as long as it stays dry uh it's going to get in their joints it's going to kill them um well, that's what i told him malcolm told us that a long time ago yeah once it gets wet it, you can forget it yep Okay. Yeah, and that's still true. And, of course, you know, on trees and things like that, uh, you can wrap a piece of plastic wrap or foil around the trunk and dab it with that tangle foot, and they can't get across it. But that even even your broccoli, it doesn't get tree-like enough that that's going to work there. But uh, people that have them getting up on their peach trees, that's another favorite target and things. On trees, they're relatively easy to stop. But, you know, with your coal plants and uh, plants in the coal family, which they seem to like, and uh, you got to – Got to work a little harder to get them under control. Well, I thought he had misdiagnosed it because the boy uh, called in on the on it, and I thought, well, they just had cabbage lopers really bad, and he mm-hmm. thought it was he thought it was ants. But he went up yesterday and says, "Man, they're just uh, they're just consuming everything." Well. They, you know, they're most active at night, and if you really want to see, be sure doing it, you need to go out there with the flashlight some night and look, and you will actually see the ants carrying away pieces of the leaves. That's, uh, um, that, I mean, cabbage loopers are, are really bad right now, and cabbage loopers can, you know, certainly do a lot of damage, as can rabbits and lots of other things, but... Uh, uh, that is one thing that the cut ants will go after. And like you say, I, I go out at night with the flashlight and just look around and, you know, see what's going on in the garden. And, uh, um, it's amazing the caterpillars of sorts that you will see out eating at night, the woolly bears and some of the others you don't see any other time. But, uh, if it is cut ants, you got to find the mound and you got to, got to flood them. Yeah. He, he found them 
found where they were going in and out in a few locations. Yeah. So uh, I'll give him the word on the flood, and uh, I'll pick him up a sack of uh, DE down at the feed store. So Sounds like a good thing, and I don't think it's out yet, but Nature's Creation's going to come out with a new, bigger-sized DE at a super reasonable price. Uh, it's going to be in a sack, and it's going to be less expensive uh, than the one they put up in the plastic jar for about four times as much DE. So it is a good product, and we, we're going to have a good new, very low, very reasonably priced source on that. But uh, for the meantime, uh, you know, just don't get swimming pool stuff. All other DE is is DE, and uh, it's great against any insect that has a hard exoskeleton. Yeah, I'm still working on uh, I bought two sacks from Malcolm and filled up a trash can, <laughs> and I'm still working on that, but... It's already a million years old, so you don't have to worry about it going bad. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for all the good advice. Always a pleasure, James. Good luck on your cut, ants. Man, I've got the best of both worlds. Two great engineers in here instead of just one this morning. <laughs> so life is good. Uh, it's going to be Ron and Paul and Beverly and Thomas and Ron's first. Good morning, Ron. Hi, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I live up north of where you folks are at, up in Zone 6. Okay. And uh, last fall, we went to a farmer's market, and the wife bought uh, a bunch of shallots. Mm -hmm. I guess they're like an onion of some sort. They're in the same family, yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we we plan on saving some of them to see if we can... Uh, plant them and get a, a return on them. Okay. And the ones that we got are about the size of a large radish. Mm-hmm. And I see some in the stores. My goodness, they're oh, they're they're between the size of a golf ball and a baseball. Right. I mean, they're really big. I'm assuming those are two different varieties. Uh, they are. There are many varieties of shallots out there, and some people confuse shallots with multiplying onions, uh, and they're really two different things. If um, you know, if you want the big shallots, you pretty much buy them as in your area. Now we don't do this in Texas because uh, totally totally different winters, but you can buy the what they call the sets which are actually a little dry bulb that's been interrupted in growth. You'll plant those as we get toward the end of winter, and you'll have beautiful big shallots to harvest and enjoy. And then we have those uh, bunching shallots, so to speak, uh, where you you know they just make a bigger and bigger clump. And every fall, um, in, in your case, uh, again, it's totally different timing here, you dig and divide and save some to replant and go ahead and enjoy others. But yes, there are, there's more than one kind of shallot and the bigger ones that you're seeing are not of the type that you can, uh, uh, maintain the same little clump year after year after year and still get good, big, big, uh, shallots to enjoy. Okay. The, the ones we got, we're in a cluster, sort of like a head of garlic. Uh huh. They were not as many, I don't know what you call them, uh, or whatever. And yeah. Anyway, they'd be, uh, the ones that we got, the shallots were like four that you could separate. Mm-hmm. And like I said, size-wise, could those be planted in something that would hopefully encourage size on them? Or are the, is that just the, 
the nature of the beast. Yeah, well, it's kind of the nature of the beast. Genetics say it's not going to get above a certain size. What is your normal minimum temperature? How cold do you typically get in the winter? What's your coldest well, day? Well, last night we were down in the 20s, but uh, we've lived here for 10 years now. We're up near the Branson, Missouri area. Right. It gets down, oh, 10 degrees, I would say, is probably as cold as it gets. Yeah, So, but they're, they're not something that you can really leave in the ground year-round. What you're going no. to do is you're going to divide, enjoy some. The rest, you're going to keep them in a cool, dry place and uh, plant out. You know, freezing weather down in the 20s is not an issue at all to shallots, but... Uh, uh, 10 degrees, single digits are real bad. So it's something you're going to be, in effect, replanting every spring. But you can certainly do well with them. But it's only a dream to think that they're going to get bigger than, uh, you know, oh, God. Yeah. You know, they're, they're never going to reach the size of a ping pong ball, I'll put it that way. Okay. But on the other hand, visit a good nursery or visit some of your online suppliers and look at the yeah. sets and plant some of those in early spring, and you'll have some real good eating. Okay, now how deep... Do you normally plant those little bulbs or whatever? I always, on things like that, I plant them about as deeply as the bulb is high. If your bulb is an inch tall, then put about an inch of soil on top of it. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. I appreciate your call, and uh, you have a great new gardening year. And uh, call me anytime (laughs) I can help, Ron. It's always good to hear from you. (laughs) Come on. Paul's up next. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have a, a nephew that bought a home in Floresville. It's nothing but sand. Right. And I guess after, you know, a foot or so. Anyway, I want to get him a lemon tree. Would the Myers lemon tree work okay over there? I still think Myers is the best lemon on the market. Uh, and you'll see things sold as improved Myers, uh, and they're all the same. There is, uh, you know, some of them seem to have more thorns than others. But uh, Myers lemon is not going to be as big as a Ponderosa or some of these giant lemon things, but it is thinner skinned, it is sweeter, and it is more cold hardy. So, yeah, Myers lemon still gets my vote is probably the best lemon out there. Great. Uh, he, I think this is his last uh, move because he's in the service and he's going to get retired here pretty soon. And uh... <laughs> well, tell him we appreciate his service, but we'll be glad to have him a little more uh, stable as far as uh, housing goes in the future, so he can plant yeah. a garden and enjoy it getting better year after year. Well, that's what I told him. I said, you need a housewoman until everybody brings you some fruit trees, you yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, just, uh, you know, but the thing to always remember is uh, you've got a blank palette and put a lot of thought into what you want to do with it and what you want to grow. Don't just start rushing out to plant everything. Or you're going to be calling me in three years uh, talking about the mistakes you made and what can you do to correct them. But uh, a Myers lemon would be a would be a good start. Now, even in that area, I'm probably not going to plant it in the ground. I mean, if you want to go ahead and give it to him just as a housewarming gift, great. Mm-hmm. But tell him not to put it in the ground until March or so because uh, uh, we do occasionally get winters cold enough that they have to be protected or they get some damage. So I'm I'm not putting citrus in the ground right now, but uh, find to get it and give it to him and just tell him keep it a pop, move it in and out if it's going to get uh, very far down into the 20s. But yeah, I think it'd be a a uh, very kind and thoughtful thing to do. So March would be the time then, huh? Uh, is assuming that the winter goes away like it typically does in late February. 
Well, we've had a strange one, too, haven't we? Uh, how many years do we say that about, you know, 19 <laughs> out of the last 20 or something? But old Malcolm yeah. Beck used to say, uh, if it weren't for the weather, what would we have to talk about? So I think that that's the most true. accurate weather thing I've heard. Thank you, sir. You have a good one. You do the same, Paul. Thank you, sir. All right, let's make, get back to gardening. Uh, one line open. Grab it if you like. It's Beverly, Thomas, and... Uh, David, in that order, let me hit the right button here. Beverly's up first. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Uh, how you doing? Ah, it's just a beautiful day out there. A little chilly start, but it's going to be a fantastic afternoon. Yeah, what a blessing. Okay, two questions. First of all, my husband likes to sit in the back and, and burn the uh, wood from the trees that has died or he cut or whatever. Okay. And and he has a lot of charcoal, and usually we put it in the garbage. But I was wondering, is that good for the soil? In a limited amount, yes. But ash is very, very alkaline, and, you know, natural charcoal, natural wood ash uh, is is fine stuff. Now, if it's stuff from charcoal briquettes, no. A lot of that stuff is treated with chemicals and lighter fluid and things like that. So um, I wouldn't be putting that around the yard. But uh, the just the, the good old charcoal and ash from burning native trees, uh, a small amount of it is just fine. It adds potassium, uh, which will make your vegetables sweeter. But uh, don't overdo it because it is very alkaline and uh, too much of it will keep things from growing well. Okay. Okay, then I will do that. Okay. I, I just wait thing. for I wait for a windy day, and then I'll go down and stand on one edge of my garden and just kind of throw it up in the air and let Mother Nature take it around the garden. Oh, okay, and not just put it uh, like the bucket full real thick. No, uh, you don't want to put don't want to put a thick layer anywhere. Very thin layer. Okay, very thin. Okay, okay, and then about let's see, about thirty three years ago, uh, we had um, my grandson. Uh, Send Paul, and we had the landscape timbers, and we got them from Home Depot. And so now we have it in the back, and we have dirt in it. Can I plant? Uh, is it safe to plant a vegetable garden in it? You know, all the nasty stuff uh, is probably pretty much leached out and gone away. I think it would be totally safe for planting things that produce above the ground, like tomatoes and peppers and eggplant and broccoli and cauliflower and things like that. I probably wouldn't be planting potatoes or radishes, uh, things that are in the ground, because uh, 20 years ago they were using a lot worse stuff. Uh, in making those, you know what landscape timbers were, the way they make plywood, they actually, they take that tree uh, log and, and roll it like you would on a rotisserie and peeling off a thin layer, and then when it gets too thin for it to peel any more off of, that's what they turn into landscape timbers, they used a preservative high in arsenic and some other really nasty stuff, and that stuff doesn't go away. So I'm not planting potatoes or radishes or turnips or, you know, jicama, things like that. I'm not going to plant in that bed. But things that grow up above the ground, uh, like I say, like peppers and tomatoes and eggplant and squash and things like that, I think you're probably okay for. Okay, and greens, like I love collards and, and greens. Is That's all right, too? That's all right, but those are not summer plants. Those are things that should have been planted a couple of months ago. Okay. And uh, you can still plant some, but the growing season on greens is going away pretty soon. Okay, but but you think it is going to be safe to do it? Because yeah. it's, actually, it's 33, it's about 33 years since... 
Yeah. Since we yeah. bought it. Again, 33 years ago, the chemicals they used were a lot worse than what they use these days. And unfortunately, some of those chemicals are very, very slow to go away. But I'm sure that with watering and rain and everything else, they're diluted down to the point that uh, they're not much above the background levels of what was already in our soil to begin with. So, yeah, I think you're probably okay there. Okay. Well, I really thank you. Well, you are really welcome. And, uh, Get out and get a good garden guide because it's, you know, there are things we can plant now, but, man, we're just a couple of months away from really going wild with our warm weather garden. So be prepared, have a plan, decide what you want to grow where, and uh, welcome to the world of having the best produce in the world, Beverly. It's always good to yeah, talk to okay, you. One thing, when do I put my nematodes out? Hmm. Um, anytime you have a problem with fleas, if you have an issue with ticks or with thrips, now is a good time to put them out. I generally put them out before I plant my spring garden, uh, which is usually about, uh, you know, first of March or so. But right now, unless you have a flea problem or unless you have an issue with ticks and thrips, probably not much reason to put them out right now. Yeah, well, we don't have any problems with that. And so, and we have, we have five, uh, rescue dogs that's here. And so none of them has, Ticks are fleas and so You are very fortunate in that, and thank you for taking care of the puppies that need the help. <laughs> yeah, they, they all find us. <laughs> and okay, their res- rescue animals are the most grateful animals in the world, dogs and cats oh. both. So uh, you keep up the good work, and if you have any questions about them, Dr. Kirby will be here in about an hour and 15 minutes, and we'll get those questions taken care of. Okay, and thank you so much, and God bless you. You as well, Beverly. Thank you. Ah, back to gardening. It's going to be Thomas and David and Mike, and Thomas is up first. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, sir. And you, uh, have you ever tried to grow chia seed? Ah, it's been a lot of years, <laughs> but yeah. Well, uh, you know, I've I've been reading a lot about that, and uh, you know, some I don't know if it's the Apache or Comanche tribe used to. Used to survive on that stuff. It came in a little bag, and, mm-hmm. and uh, well, anyway, I've been uh, I bought a big bag of that stuff, and it's really it's really neat because it's it's real it's higher in, in uh, the omega threes and all, mm-hmm. even more than uh, flaxseed. Right. And uh, you put I can put about four tablespoons in a bowl. And I use almond milk, but you can use any kind of milk, and you have to kind of get it warm. Not, don't boil it, just warm. And that stuff right. swells up. You can't believe it, man. <laughs> kind of like cream of wheat. Yeah, and I, I, and it, I mean, it's so easy, and I, I put it. Uh, I put blueberries in mine. Yeah, I, I've never, I've never grown it to try to produce the seed, but uh, we used to, you know, they used to have these little creatures that were made of a very porous clay, and you soaked them in water, and then you sprinkled the seed all over them, and they grew hair, so to speak. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, you're taking me way, way, way back <laughs> to talk about chia pets and things like that, but uh, no. It is uh, it is one of those beneficial grains, provided you I would only settle for organic, because like so many of the different things, there's so much Roundup contamination out there, and uh, I want to stay away from that stuff. Well, I wonder how it grows. It's so tiny. I mean, it, it's in a pot, or... You're going to have to experiment with that and see. Like I say, we always grew it just as, you know, a fuzzy green little mass. I'm sure that agriculturally it can be grown, you know, into a grain, but I'm not sure if we have the climate to do that or not. That's 
that's something that I've I've never tried producing in the garden. I suspect that it takes, you know, just like wheat or anything else, it takes some uh, specialized equipment to separate the, the wheat from the chaff, as the old biblical right. saying is. So I don't know that it's practical, but uh, it sounds like a fun thing to grow and experiment with. But I'd still keep, you know, buying yours from Natural Grocer or wherever you can find good quality. Well, it's pretty cheap, you know. I bought a pretty big bag, and it's, it is organic, you know, yeah. and, and it's, uh, I mean, it's so easy to fix. Yeah, and, well, uh, it's it's healthy, it's easy to fix, and uh, you can always add a uh, little bit of honey or molasses or something like that to, yeah. to liven up the flavor. So it sounds like you've discovered a, a healthful, fun thing to do. Uh, on this uh, humate that uh, Medina's putting out, is that a dry humate or a liquid? Or? They do both. They do both. They have, uh, they've produced or they've offered for sale the liquid. Uh, they're coming out um, with some new forms of it. Both of them are excellent. Uh, Humate, of course, doesn't dissolve, but uh, they are able to micronize it is the term that they use to put it in such tiny, tiny particles that you can mix it with water and it goes into suspension rather than into solution. But, uh, yeah, you can get liquid humates or dry humates, either one, and uh, I think very highly of the Medina Company. There are a bunch of other people producing dry humates, but uh, Medina is the main brand you're going to find if you're looking for liquid humates. It's on the market, though, right? Absolutely, absolutely. We probably have it sitting on the shelves over at Shades of Green. Okay. Another thing real quick, uh, whenever you, you uh, start a plant out in the, in the perlite, mm-hmm. how much do you, wa- how much do you have to water that? Do you, I mean, it's kind of just to keep it like once a day or keep, keep the, it or what? uh, it would be impossible to water perlite too often because perlite is so open. As you've heard me say many times, water doesn't kill anything. Lack of oxygen kills things, and that's why if you keep soil too wet, roots uh, die. With perlite, it is so open and has so much air in it that you will never have to, you know, worry about keeping it too wet. Now, depending on the time of the year, depending on the place that you're doing it all, um, you may want to mist it more often. As far as watering the perlite, no, every day or two is plenty. But many different things, if you've started them from cuttings, they will drop fewer leaves. They will root more quickly if you mist over them. Now, in my home greenhouse, which is relatively small, 15 by 20, um, I don't have a mist system in there because I'm not propagating enough to justify it. But I've got stuff in there rooting all the time. And uh, I just have a little mist nozzle on the end of my hose. And when I leave for work in the morning, I go out and mist things down. When I get up and get home in the afternoon, I go out and mist things down again. But as far as moistening the perlite, every day or two or three seems to work fine. I And, and I'll have, you know, a big... Uh, pot that I simply cleaned and filled with the perlite. Sometimes uh, I set that down into a saucer and just leave a little bit of water standing in the bottom of the saucer to be sure it never gets too dry. Okay. Well, I kind of thought that was the way you did it, but I wasn't sure. You know, I didn't want to drown stuff. Well, in perlite, you never have to worry about keeping something too wet. Okay, Bob. Well, Thanks as always. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for bringing up too. Chia. So, uh, just another fun topic to talk about. Okay, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, Thomas. All right. Top of the board is David. Good morning, David. 
Good, good morning, sir. Thank you for your show. My I, pleasure. I have a couple of quick, quick questions. I have a Shamard maple tree, and it's doing fine. Do you mean Shumard uh, oak? I'm sorry, sir. Yes. Okay. Shumard red yeah. oak. <laughs> you, you had a new tree on me. I never heard of a Shumard maple, but I've certainly <laughs> heard, heard of plenty of Shumard oaks. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, I'm just all excited because I was able to get in on a Sunday. Uh, but uh, what I wanted to ask you, the tree's doing fine. It's it's got about a five-inch diameter at the very bottom. Okay. About a foot, foot, a foot from the bottom, there, there's a hole that I noticed about eight or nine months ago. Didn't pay attention to it. Okay. And, and it, it seemed like a little bit of sap was coming out, and I stuck a little blade of grass, and I followed that hole. It's hollow up about maybe three or four inches going up towards the crown of the tree. Uh-huh. Do you, do you think there's a bore of some type in there? There could be. Um, is the root flare exposed on that Shumard oak? Do you see the roots coming out at the base of the tree? Is it flaring out? No, no, sir. Okay. It's it's okay. it seems to be doing fine. Other, otherwise, well, here's here's the thing: if a tree is buried too deeply. It will grow, but it's going to be always under a little bit of stress. Uh, it's going to be more susceptible to borers and other things. So um, I'm going to suggest two things to you. I would like to see you pull the dirt back away from the base of the tree down to where you see those roots flaring out. That's You, you just don't want to have a Schumard or any other tree buried because it may grow. It may live for years, but ultimately having soil piled up around the trunk above what we call the root flare will probably kill the tree someday and will certainly make it more susceptible to borers and other damage. So uh, first thing I'm going to do is is get the soil pulled back until I get down to where the roots are flaring out. Now, one borer I probably wouldn't worry about is something called a flathead borer, and they, they're between the xylem, the woody part of the tree, and the outer bark. But if you want to make up a fairly concentrated solution of orange oil and water, uh, maybe six or eight ounces of orange oil to a gallon of water, and just spray that on the trunk of the tree. It won't hurt the tree, but the orange oil will go through the bark and kill the borer underneath the bark. Okay. Uh, if I were to get like a water gun or something and try to squirt it up in that uh, channel or canal, wherever that, that insect might, may be, do you think that would help more <laughs> or would it harm the tree? <laughs> I don't think it would do either one. I think I think you get more of it on you than you actually got on the tree. Uh, but okay. there's certainly nothing wrong with doing that. If I were doing it, uh, the way that I would do it is um, if you have uh, either if you have a doctor or a nurse or a veterinarian that's a friend, and I think you probably know who my veterinarian friend is, I would get okay. a fairly large diameter, um, you know, shot needle in effect, a syringe, but just the body, not the needle, uh, but, you know, one of these things that holds several cc's. And uh, I would put my orange oil in that, and then I would just take that and stick it in the hole and just squirt it up there, just push that plunger down, um, and that would be a lot easier than a water gun or something like that. And like I say, you don't, you don't want something with a needle on the end of it, but the, uh, the body of the syringe uh, that you can put the liquid in uh, and then just use that. It's got that little plastic tip on it, so you can stick it down into the hole, aim it upwards, and just uh, uh, it's the best little squirt gun in the world. Okay, fantastic. Um, my next question, sir, if I may, please. I'm looking for a Chinese tallow tree, mm -hmm. and 
uh, also something that will give me, I love the fall color that, that a Chinese towel has, and I'm looking for something similar if I can't find a Chinese towel, because I know they're an invasive species. Well, they're no longer... In in town, I have no problem with Chinese tallow. Out in the country, they can be invasive. But uh, if you're in town, you know, look around. There are plenty of nurseries. That's something you're going to see at the box stores and places like that. And uh, Chinese tallow, you know, they're a beautiful tree. They are, unfortunately, a messy tree. They are not usually a really long-lived tree. What you can always do, and you can do it this time of the year, go find one in the neighborhood, and it's probably going to be covered with seed, and just go knock on the door and say, hey, can I have some of your, you know, some of your Chinese tallow seed? And 99 out of 100 people are going to say, have at it. And uh, they grow quickly and easily from seed. And like I say, I don't recommend them out in the country, but in an urban neighborhood, they're not going to become a problem. And they are one of our prettiest trees as far as fall color goes. Now, there are other things. Um, you know, some of the red oaks give you beautiful fall color. Unfortunately, they are susceptible to oak wilt. But uh, there are some maples out there. Uh, not so much the Japanese maples, but the Shantung maple, the, uh, um, oh, I sure didn't taught them. What is it? Uh, the, uh, or the maple they have up at Lost Maples. And, uh, just oh, the, the big, blue, uh, big tooth, big maple. tooth maple. That's what I'm trying to think of. Those are going to give you a beautiful yellow color. And believe it or not, some of the prettiest red foliage you'll ever see is going to be on some of the crepe myrtles. Yes, sir. I've, I've, I've seen that. Uh, any any particular crepe myrtle that does that with a pretty No, just one with a pink or red uh, flower is going to have pretty leaves, too. And I have two lines open there that you get through if you dial right now. 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Mike and then to Ron, and um, uh, we'll just go on from there. Let's get started. Good morning, Mike. Hi, Mike. Hey, can you hear me? I hear you just fine. How are you uh, doing today? I, I just wanted to share something with you and the listeners. I found it out by mistake. Go to your uh, your local box store. I know winter's almost over with, but if you have a plant or a small tree that's the size of a, the bark, the the base of it is about the size of a good garden hose, uh-huh. go to your box store and buy that black foam insulating pipe insulator that's split in half and open it up, put it around the bark of your little tree there and tape it up and it's ready for the winter. Well, that might be a good thing to do on something tender like citrus, but I sure wouldn't do it on a lot of trees because two things happen when you stop letting sunlight hit a tree then when that eventually gets taken off, you can actually sunburn the bark of the tree. That's what happens a lot of times uh when uh, these trees are grown too close together and then put out in the open. You also have to uh, be careful that you're not just creating a haven for pill bugs or scorpions or other things down there. But, yeah, if you have something that's cold-sensitive that you put on in the fall and take off in the spring, yeah, Yeah. uh, it's a good thing to do. I haven't been keeping it on. It's just when I get a weather report that we're going to have a freeze, uh-huh. I'll flip out. I have a little greenhouse. I'll flip out there and just <laughs> slide them on for the for the cold night. And uh, sounds like a good plan to me. Good suggestion. Okay. I enjoy all your show. Thanks a lot. Yes, sir. Thank you. I right. appreciate right. it. Bye. 
All right, uh, it's going to be Ron and David and Candy, and Ron's next. Good morning, Ron. Yeah, good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. I'm, I live in San Antonio, but I have this ranch. I call you from time to time out here in Real County. Yes, sir. Deep Canyon country. Uh, I planted what I thought would be a proper, I guess you call it a succulent, at the front gate. And uh, I, prop, I mean, I uh, watered it, took care of it for about almost a year. And then something, it looks like something just set on it and squashed it and killed it. Um, so my question is, I want to plant something that would be in the hill country without a lot of care, um, and maybe deer won't bother it. I've actually had century plants that I'm sure it was a white-tailed buck that literally yeah. ripped it apart with their antlers. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if a Spanish dagger, would if they'd leave that alone. or No, they'll, they'll, or, they'll go after that, too. Spanish dagger is a good choice. It's actually a yucca, yucca. Carnarosena, and what I do, and it's really not too not too obtrusive if you do it right, but young trees or things like that where I've got a problem with the deer, I take just a couple of T-posts, I'll just lean them up against it, uh, you know, chunk of baling wire, top and bottom to hold it in place, and they will not rub on anything where they're going to start hitting that metal. They, they want something they can actually rub the bark off of. I think, uh, you know, the Spanish dagger or graveyard daggers, it's sometimes called, you know, is about as trouble-free a plant as you could ever plant. But um, they'll, they will rub on almost any natural wood, and they will do significant damage to it. Now, um, some people like palms, and palms do go in desert areas. Uh, it doesn't do the same kind of damage because a woody tree has a very important layer of tissue called the the uh, uh, phloem that is just right underneath the bark and then your cambium underneath that. And when that gets rubbed off, you know, the plant dies. In the case, right, I've had them do that. <laughs> yeah. In, in the case of any kind of palm tree or any kind of, uh, you know, cycad or anything like that, uh, the tissue, the phloem and xylem, is scattered throughout the trunk in something we call vascular bundles. And so on a palm tree, it's, you know, never going to hurt it to have deer rubbing on it. But it's not exactly the look. I mean, California or somewhere like that, that's what they would consider a good desert plant, maybe even Nevada or somewhere like that. But I don't know if that's the kind of look that you're looking for. But that's about the only thing I can think of that you can put out there that I'd tell you the deer will never rub on. But uh, just, you know, just simply couple of t posts up against it and i do it more just for that period from about um oh usually about august until about january when the when the bucks are likely to be out there rubbing and then it just you know comes right off through most of the rest of the season but that's the only way uh short of putting a cage around it that i think you stop them i just uh, i just think a couple of t posts up against there are much less obnoxious in appearance so you just lean the T-post up against it? Well, I just, I just, you know, will. Uh, it's easiest if you have a friend helping you. So you've got one person holding the T-post up against it, and then the second person just wraps, uh, you know, just strand of bailing wire around the top, strand of bailing wire around the bottom, and you're done. Now, you can't leave it there year after year. You'd have to go back and loosen that wire. But, again, I usually just put it on for six months at a time, and then it comes off, and that way I'm not ever worried about girdling or anything like that. Okay, well then I'm going to try the what I call the Spanish dagger. We sure. have them on the property. Yeah, uh, you know they're native, but 
but I don't want to try to dig one up and transplant because <laughs> they're very, very rocky soil. I, uh, yeah, I spent my years, three parts of three summers in a wildlife management area in West Texas and became intimately associated with them. Other things that you could consider, um, the good old uh, Texas sage, the Sinisa leucophyllum. Yeah, um, I had those property yeah well there's some much prettier varieties out there that have more intensely colored flowers and make more compact plants and they are less likely to try to rub on those and whip them up so that might be something you could plant along with it to get a little bit of color you know in there as well i haven't thought of sinisa yeah very quickly bob i keep an accurate rain record out here to the hundredth of an inch i had over 15 inches the first six months, less than four the last six. Yeah. Well, it's the, I, driest, it's the driest year since I've been out here in 20 years. Yeah. It's, uh, it's su- surprisingly, our aquifers are not in bad shape yet. But if we don't get rain in the next six weeks, uh, and people start watering rivers, uh, trees come out along the rivers and things like that, uh, we're in for a bad summer. But, you know, Friday night was the uh, first time I've seen a front that really spread rain over a wide area. So I'm very much in hopes that uh, we will go back into a slightly moisture period. My friend, who is a true meteorologist, uh, says we are in enso neutral, which means it's not El Nino or La Nina, and uh-huh. it may or may not rain. He He says persistence is probably the thing to expect. If it gets dry, it's probably going to stay dry. If we move into a period of somewhat more regular rainfall, we're probably going to have that. We're not likely to have the monsoons unless or until we move back into La Nina, but uh, we're just kind of in a neutral holding pattern and let's just hope and pray that we uh, we get into the pattern where we get a little bit more moisture. But you are so right. The soil is so dry on the surface, and we desperately need the rains to pick up before uh, all the vegetation starts coming back out and growing on things. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, and just quickly, I'm going to let you go. Uh, the storm that came through last night, uh, I didn't get a single drop. We were on the very western edge of it. Yeah. The wind blew, the wind blew, but that was it. It was south and southeast of here that they got some uh, storm well and i was on the eastern edge of it i could have used a lot more but i'm just glad to see that uh the weather pattern at least you know for the short term i mean it been all we'd had is drizzle we hadn't we've seen a lot of fronts come through but no associated rainfall with those fronts this one we actually saw some rainfall with a front moving through and uh i'm just in hopes that we're going to see more of that in the future and hope you're under the right cloud next time around Okay, thank you for your advice, Bob. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Ron. Okay, next up is Pam. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, Bob. I'm up here in Mason dodging deer this morning. <laughs> but um, I want I know. I want to ask you a question. I have a, my mom's house in San Antonio. I'm getting ready to do some major changes in the landscape. I'm trying to get rid of that... Um, Oh, those purple hearts or those wandering Jews. How, how do I dig those up? Uh, pretty expensive root system. Uh, I use a grubbing hoe. You know, I don't think you'll ever do it with a shovel, but a grubbing hoe, you know, has that broad flat blade, and then it has turned 90 degrees. It has a, you know, sort of a, not a sharp blade, but at least a, a more angular blade on the back. But that's the only thing, and, and you'll never get them all the first time. But I just go in there, and I just chop down about an inch, inch and a half into the soil, 
because that Purple Heart, Cretia, some people call it Purple Wandering Jew, um, it doesn't come back from the roots. But if you don't get the entire stem out, it will sprout back out. But I'll get down there and I just try to chop through, cutting everything about an uh, inch, inch and a half below the surface. And I'll get rid of 95% of it the first time and I'll get the last 5% the next time I go back after it. Awesome. Okay, that's what I had the question on. Thank you very much, Bob. You're not going to find anything you can spray it with, and I don't think you'll be successful digging it out. So uh, um, if you can't physically do that, you know, about 10 minutes worth of work by somebody with a a strong back and a little upper body strength, uh, you'll be rid of it. I'll do it myself, and and I appreciate your information. You go for it, Pam. Thank you, ma'am. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Certainly. Goodbye. All right, back to gardening and one line open. Grab it if you like. Um, right now, and talk to David and Candy and Rick. And David's up first. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Uh, How are you doing? Good and fantastic. How about you today? Oh, okay. That many commercials, you probably have time to eat you a taco, right? Oh man, if I weren't salivating so much, and if I were allowed to have food in the control or in the broadcast studio, which I'm not. <laughs> I just get to sit here and, and uh, yeah, think, uh, yeah, well, do some other things, shall we say. I've always got paperwork. I've always got notes to make. I've always got something to check on the Internet or somewhere. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, most fun, though, is talking to people like you. How can I help today? Listen, I have a uh, rose bush in a five-gallon pot. Uh-huh. Can I put it in the ground? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, sooner the better. Uh, a lot easier to maintain in the ground, and since you're just taking it out of a pot and putting it in the ground, you're not going to disturb the roots at all. So just pick a good sunny spot with enough room for it to grow, and this afternoon it would be a great project. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll do it. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. You do the same, David. That's Thank about you. It for me. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, I, short question, long question. I'm here to help you with all of them. So you have a good day. And uh, Candy is next. Good morning, Candy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. We uh, we are in Garden Ridge, and we have a winter garden. Okay. And w- we have planted uh, one of the crops is uh, the flat leaf ca- uh, kale. Yeah. And it is getting brown spots on the edge of the leaves. What do we need to do? Um, I suspect it is. Uh, is it in good bright sunlight? Not good bright, but there is some sunlight. Okay. It's probably just an issue that it would like to have more sunlight than it's getting. If uh, there's any tree trimming or anything you can do to get more sunlight to it, you will have less of that. Now, kale will grow in shade if it's really bright shade, but you will have a little bit more spotting on the leaves. You're probably also going to have to pick your leaves a little smaller and they will be tastier that way. So don't wait for them to make great big leaves. Go ahead and be picking those outer leaves when they're, uh, oh, you know, a couple of inches in diameter. And in that way, you'll get a lot of them. And what you're looking at is not a bug and it's not a disease. It It's just, um, it's kind of the the result of not enough, not as much light it was, as it would really like to have. Be sure that when you water, you water very thoroughly. But let that soil get dry a knuckle or so deep before you water again. Don't keep it too wet. That will contribute to the problem. But your biggest issue is just you need more sunshine. 
Okay, we know that we have. Uh, it has sun partially during the day, but yeah. then we that we got so many trees. <laughs> Uh, well, do a little tree trimming if you like your kale better than your trees, and uh, you know, don't don't butcher them. But um, uh, too much shade can be just as much of a problem. It's not enough. Okay. Well, we really appreciate you. We listen to you every Sunday morning well, on our way to church. I thank you for that, and you enjoy church this morning, and uh, get your new year off to a good start with Hawk again. Right now, uh, we'll just keep going. Uh, Rick is up next, and it'll be Kelsey. Good morning, Rick. Uh, good morning, Bob. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I'm calling. I'm calling down here from Laredo. Okay. You know we've had a very we've had a very mild winter. <laughs> so have we. Yeah. Yes. It's uh, it, it hadn't been much winter, but uh, we much. could go all we go another couple of months without any winter, or it could get bad next week. So we'd just be thankful for what we've had so far. That's right. You're right. Uh, so I, my question was. Uh, you know, I wanted to have, a, you know, I have a bare spot in my backyard, and I wanted to plant some St. Augustine grass. Yes, sir. Would it be a bad time to do that now? If you can find nice grass, it's a fine time to do it. You'll have to water right. regularly. I'd always put out a little cornmeal just to be sure you don't get brown patch started. But uh, I'm thinking the same thing. I've got a couple of places that uh, I'd like to get a little bit going. And so uh, if I make it another couple of weeks without any real severe weather yeah i'm going to be planting a few squares of st augustine so as long as you can find somebody down there that has nice grass now insist on getting good green grass and you should be able to get it i mean it's mostly grown over in bay city don't let anybody sell you any brown shriveled up grass because it's probably dead grass they'll tell you it's dormant but it's probably just dead so if you can find some uh decent st augustine Remember, too, that it cannot remain stacked on the pallet. You can't pile it up and do it next week. You need to plant it the day you get it. But uh, all things being equal, I wouldn't hesitate to plant a little grass this time of year. I think it'd be just fine. Great, great. Cause people give me conflicting opinions. You know, they say, no, you know, you shouldn't do it in the wintertime and this and that. So, Well, tell them it's not winter. Get... Tell, tell them winter didn't come around this year. <laughs> <laughs> or at least it hasn't right. yet now if, if you know and um you want to put it down you want to either roll it or press it you know get it very firmly in contact with the soil you're going to water probably daily until you get some roots going but uh um as mild as it is and where you're in laredo you know, you most years you can plant it all winter if you can find nice grass because you get cold, but you don't normally get the the really severe, severe cold that the hill country can get periodically. So, uh, uh, again, my only issue is can you find nice grass to plant? If you can find nice grass, plant it this afternoon. Okay, great. Just one thing. Do I, should I loosen up the soil a little bit? No, sir, I don't think that's necessary. You want to be sure that your new grass makes good contact with the soil. So if there's any dead grass, if there are leaves, if there are twigs or anything, rake it out so that your new grass is going to be in contact with good soil underneath. But that's all you need to do. All right, great. Well, very good. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. You have a good afternoon, Rick. And uh, and let me go ahead and talk to Kelsey. Good morning, Kelsey. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, so we have a question about a rosemary plant. Okay. We were gifted one for Christmas, mm -hmm. um, and we are trying to save it. So we have replanted um, it in a pot with potting soil, um, but it's not doing well. So we didn't know if you had any suggestions for us. 
Well, uh, lots of suggestions. Is this, uh, do you know if it's the spreading out type or if it's the upright type of rosemary? I think it's more of the upright. Um, okay. Whenever It was a gift. It looked like a Christmas tree, so okay. that's why I think it's more upright. Okay, very good. Uh, do you have it outside? Yes, it is outside. Is it getting full sun? Yes. All right, you're off to a good start. It probably got a little dry at some point while it was serving as a little mini Christmas tree, or that might have happened before you even got it. But the things about rosemary, it needs lots of sun. That upright form is cold-hardy down probably close to zero degrees. It's more cold-hardy than the prostrate or spreading form. So uh, no reason to bring it in unless temperature is going to drop below freezing and stay there for five or six days. At this point, the kind of weather we're having is great for it. Water it very thoroughly when you water it. It would be good to water it in. Uh, there's a product out there called Super Thrive, which is great at getting some root started if it's gotten a little shocked. I mean, when you read the bottle, and get a little tiny bottle because you literally only use a cap full to a gallon of water. But it looks like snake oil. It'll say, you know, healer, reviver, new life maker, on and on and on. But it's really amazing stuff where something's gotten a little shocked. But uh, you might want to use a little bit of that in with the water. A little garret juice will do much the same thing. But uh, water really thoroughly when you water. Then let it go until it's dry a couple of knuckles deep. And... Um, it, as long as it never got totally bone dry, as long as it didn't just really get severely mistreated, it's going to come back out for you. It's uh, upright rosemary is a very, very hardy plant. Uh, uh, once it's established, do you plan to keep it in a pot or do you plan to put it in the ground? Uh, we're going to keep it in a pot. Okay. You're going to always have to watch your watering because um, always remember what I always tell people is there's no such thing as overwatering. There's never such thing as too much water, but you can do it too often. So when you water it, flood it. Then let that soil dry to maybe where it's half an inch uh, dry, half an inch deep, and then flood it again. The worst thing you can do is water it frequently but lightly because most of the roots on that plant are all the way in the bottom of the pot. So uh, unless you're watering thoroughly enough to really soak all the roots, uh, then you're not watering thoroughly enough. So when you water it, I want to see a lot of water go on it, but then I don't want you to water it again till the, the surface of the soil is good and dry. But... Uh, it, at this point, it's probably not going to change a lot for the next four to six weeks. But at that point, it should start putting on new growth and should come out pretty well for you. Like I say, as long as it hasn't gone down too far, as long as it didn't get just severely abused by staying too dry, it should bounce back because rosemary is a, uh, is a tough, tough, hardy plant. Okay, great. Thank you so much. You keep me posted on how it does, Kelsey. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye.